Returning to the uh, little book of Jonah today. And picking up for our text this morning, the last chapter, chapter 4. Just as a reminder, we're, uh, we're in the last act, as it were, of the drama in this little book. And it has indeed had some dramatic moments. And uh, perhaps we could say the most dramatic uh, thus far has been the response of the people of Nineveh to the preaching of this reluctant prophet Jonah. Uh, there has been a tremendous response. Uh, Jesus himself points out the repentance of the people in the Gospel of Matthew that we'll be looking at when we return to that that gospel, and he's, he's seen what they did, as we read at the end of uh, chapter 3, how they turned from their evil way. And so, God has relented of the evil that he had said he would return on their heads. And that, then, sets the stage for the last act of the drama, which which really we're sort of surprised is even here, wouldn't you end the book on that wonderful note of, of repentance and grace extended by God. But instead, we're going to see a very different ending from what we might have expected in, the, in chapter 4. So let's hear this day God's word uh, to us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it had withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? 
Well, we've noticed uh, throughout all the book's narrative that the Lord God is the main character. He, he's the protagonist, the one speaking and acting in control of what happens. And so what the Lord has said and done has controlled the plot in a literary sense. And so we could say that from a literary point of view, God is the hero. He is the one who overcomes obstacles to accomplish his divine purpose. And this pattern continues in the last scene of the book. And what also continues is that, ironically, the one putting most of the obstacles in front of the Lord is his own prophet, Jonah. And so we're going to see that. Jonah is going to react to the Lord's sovereign actions with obstacles in the form of words of complaint. But as we'll see, the Lord has the last word, and it is a word of grace and mercy. As I mentioned, the, the prelude to this act is that uh, climax at the end of chapter 3, the Lord sovereignly and decisively acted, relenting from returning upon the Ninevites, the evil that they had done, and granting them a reprieve from the judgment that they deserved. And he did that through the preaching of Jonah, who didn't want to go there in the first place. And so it's to that action, then, by the Lord, that Jonah responds in the beginning of our, t of our text. And it is a, it is a most, most incredible response. Look again at that first verse in chapter 4, and I, and I want to make it a little more literal, a little more pointed than it is in most translations. Literally, the text says there, Jonah thought it evil, a great evil, and he was burning with anger. Now let that soak in a minute, okay? The Hebrew word for anger used here uh, is drawn from that imagery of kindling a fire. And of course, even in the English language, we make that association as well. We talk about someone's anger smoldering or flaring up or igniting. We talk about people getting hot under the collar. And so the particular word here is a very strong one. There are six different words, as I understand it, for, in Hebrew for anger. And this is one of the stronger of them. And so you need to get that idea of burning anger. That anger that you feel in your throat sometimes. Okay, that, angry, that anger that is a burning sensation within you, sometimes even physically as well as emotionally. And notice also the use of the word evil. We've seen that that's a key word in this book shows up over and over again. The people of Nineveh were characterized back in chapter 1 as a people of evil. And God was going to bring that evil back on their heads. And so the same word is used for the judgment that he's going to bring. They have done evil, and so evil will be visited upon them. The idea that, that the wicked re receive that evil which they had purposed back upon themselves. And so when the Lord saw them turn from their evil living, again, that's literally what the text there says at the end of chapter 3, then he 
relented from the evil that he had been about to visit upon them, the disaster. And so now, Jonah is saying, that's evil. Do you see what he's doing? He's flipping it around. Okay. He's saying, in effect, it's evil for you to extend mercy to the Ninevites. I, I mean, there's just really no other way to read the text here. In Jonah's eyes, Nineveh deserves destruction. And so to withhold destruction from them is evil. These are wicked people. And they ought to have been judged. That's what Jonah is saying. Here they are, this wicked city. That, that has built their wealth on the suffering of others. It has practiced oppression. That will become known as one of the most violent civilizations that ever, ever was. Don't they deserve judgment? Do you sometimes look at the prosperity of people who live in immorality and sin and think you know it's wrong for them to be so happy if justice were done those people would be punished it's hard for us not to not to think that in fact if you think that if you've thought that uh, before you're in good company the psalmist says in psalm 73 I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Jeremiah himself, in chapter 12, says, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, speaking to God here, you plant them, they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, they talk about you, and far from their hearts. Job says, the tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. They're, they're idolaters, and yet they're secure, and I'm suffering. He says later on in the book, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. No rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to shield Meanwhile, Job has lost everything. It's, it's a natural question, isn't it? Why? Why has God done this? And so Job is, I mean, Jonah is angry. He thinks he has good cause to be angry. Now, now it's important for us to, to pause here and note that the Bible teaches us that anger is not 
wrong in and of itself. In numerous places, God himself is said to be angry. And so anger can be something which is righteous, which is holy. God's anger is the right attitude towards sin, especially sin that is flagrant and violent. And so we might say that godly anger is a passion for God's holiness and for his righteous law. So anger can be good, can be righteous. But you already know that anger can be wicked as well. It can be sinful. Rather than being angry with sin, especially one's own sin, sinners become angry because their sin is exposed, and perhaps judged. Instead of realizing that their anger is a warning sign that they need to repent, they lash out in anger at other people and even at God. What kind of anger do you have? Well, before we consider that question more closely, let's continue in our text, and, and let's put in a good word for Jonah, okay? At least, at least it's true, we see there in verse 2, that, that he prays. He takes his complaint to God. Do you go to God's word with your complaints? And listen for his responses from his word. It seems particularly galling, if you go back to verse 2 there again, particularly galling to Jonah that God chose Jonah as the means to bring about Nineveh's repentance and salvation. And so Jonah complains, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen. You probably said that before too, right? <laughs> now in another touch of irony, Jonah is correct in, in his comments about God's character there in the text, which come right out of Scripture. Right? What he says there in, in verse 2 is drawn from Exodus 34, for instance. I think I mentioned this before, where, where Moses asked God to show him a glimpse of God's glory. <clears throat> and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, that has revealed himself in this word, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And Jonah knew that God had been that way with his people Israel. In fact, right there in that same text in chapter 34, Moses admits this is a stiff-necked people. They do not want to bow the head before you. And he asked God to pardon their iniquity and their sin. And God says, I am indeed making a covenant with you. Nehemiah, when he prays in chapter 9, he, he prays the character of God. That's a wonderful way to pray, but I pray the attributes of God 
Nehemiah says, You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's that covenant love that God has for his people. In your great mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. And so over and over again, we see the prophets bringing war word of warning, saying the day of the Lord is coming and it's a day of judgment because you've, you've gone away from God's law. Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. I mean, that could be exactly the message to Nineveh, couldn't it? He goes on to say later, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? But he continues this way. Yet even now, declares the Lord, even at this late date, even in the last hour, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. It's exactly what I feared, Jonah says in his prayer of the Lord. I feared you would be the kind of God that I know you are and extend forgiveness to these wicked people. You've given the covenant blessings to a non-covenant people, he might have said. He's using covenant terms there. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, steadfast love, those are all right out of covenant language with Israel. Jonah say, you took the blessings that should have belonged to Israel and you gave them to those wicked people. So, in his burning anger, verse 3, Jonah prays for death. Now, Lord, please take my life from me, for better is my death than my life. Jonah would rather die than live knowing that Nineveh has been spared by the Lord. Anger often lashes out at others, but it can be turned inward, can it? Perhaps you yourself have felt like Jonah. Better is my death than my life. That's a human emotion that we have at times. We can find something to commend with in Jonah in this, though. He, he doesn't take matters into his own hands. He does not claim the right to take his own life, even though he prays that the Lord will take it. And in fact, he's bringing this complaint, this weight, this burden, this sorrow to God, isn't it? When your anger at the sadness and suffering of life brings to your mind the thought that life is not worth living, take that complaint to the Lord. Lay it before him. Better yet, find someone to help you take it there.
talk with someone that, that, that you believe you can trust. Allow them to have the privilege of seeking to pray with you and for you, help you in that difficult time. So Jonah does, does bring this to God. And that's good. We wouldn't say that what he's feeling is good, but it's good that he brings it to God. And what would you say if you were God? You heard your complaining prophet say this. You know, it would be natural for us to expect him to rebuke him, right? I mean, that would make logical sense to me. We wouldn't have been surprised to read that the Lord says to Jonah something like, you have no right to make yourself the absolute judge of other people. And you certainly have no right to accuse me of doing evil. The Lord could, would have been justified in saying that, right? He doesn't rebuke Jonah, though. And he doesn't give him a lecture, either. He doesn't make him sit under a sermon. I know he might have expected him to do that. The Lord could, could bring a word here and expose Jonah's wrong thinking and point him to the right way of thinking that he's missed in his narrow-mindedness. That would have seemed like a proper response, too. But the Lord doesn't do that either. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't preach at him. He asks him a question. He asks him a question. Very short question. It's only three words in Hebrew. Is it good to burn with anger in you? He's asking Jonah about himself. Okay. You're the expert, the human expert in yourself. So he's, he's asking Jonah, tell me about yourself. Is it good to burn with anger inside? What's left there hanging. And the final scene of the book takes us outside the city and presents us with Jonah alone before the Lord. And, and right about this point, we should be realizing, you know, maybe the key theme of this book is not what the Lord is doing in Nineveh, but what the Lord is doing in Jonah. Because that's where this last scene puts us. So, Jonah goes out of the city. You heard the text. He makes a little shelter for himself there. He's hoping to see the destruction of the city. And the Lord acts once again. In the first chapter of the book, we read that the Lord provided or appointed a great sea creature, and now he appoints, he provides a plant, a shade plant, to rescue him from the discomfort of the Middle Eastern heat. In fact, that word discomfort, see that word translated his misery or his discomfort, there in verse uh, 6, that's our word evil again. 
God rescues Jonah from the evil or distress that he is experiencing because of his uncomfortable physical circumstances. Maybe there's a little bit of humorous irony here too. I mean, the evil, the distress Jonah is experiencing is nothing like the evil or distress that was hanging over the city of Nineveh. But at any rate, the Lord, as the Lord spared Nineveh, he now spares Jonah. And now, did you notice, for the first and only time in the book, Jonah is rejoicing. Not only that, another of the key words of the book, great, shows up here. He's rejoicing greatly. Rejoicing greatly. We didn't read that he rejoiced at receiving a prophetic word from the Lord. We didn't read that he rejoiced in being saved from drowning. We didn't read that he rejoiced in, in seeing the response of Nineveh to his preaching. We didn't read that he rejoiced at Nineveh's being spared destruction, but we read that he rejoiced greatly because he has some shade. Now, if we'd been reading attentively, we'd realize, ah, I think he's getting set up. <laughs> and he is. He is. Sure enough, his rejoicing is short-lived, isn't it? Look at verse 7. As soon as he is rejoicing greatly in the shade of this plant, the Lord provides, points, there's our verb again, the third time we've seen it, a worm. For the fourth time in the next verse, the Lord provides or appoints something. He provided or appointed a great sea creature. And now the, the last providing or pointing in the book is there in verse 8. He provides or appoints a scorching east wind. So the fourth time that we've been reminded by this language of the Lord's sovereignty over his creation, that he works through his creation. And every time we've read this, the Lord has been doing something relative to Jonah. We might think that Jonah began to realize that the Lord has a message for him. But... He just repeats himself there in verse 8. Once again, he wishes for his death and repeats the words he spoke in verse 3. Better is my death than my life. And again, the Lord responds with a question. This time, he repeats his earlier question, but specifically refers it to the shade plant. Is it good to burn with anger about the plants? And you get the feeling this is sort of the last straw. <laughs> Jonah's anger has gotten the best of him, and he voices his complaint for the third time. It is good for me to burn with anger, even to death. And you give your anger an inch, it takes a mile, doesn't it? Suddenly, you're not in control of your anger. Your anger is in control of you. 
Ungodly anger makes a fool of you in the end, and Jonah finds himself saying that he is burning with anger over the death of a shade plant, so much so that he wishes he himself was dead. Isn't it true that it may not be the great disappointments in life, but the small ones that come just when you thought you were getting some relief that seem to push you over the edge. We're seeing Jonah here in verse 9 at his lowest point, aren't we? He's been brought to the lowest point by the wilting of a plant on a hot day. Our anger flares up like that sometimes, doesn't it? Over some small thoughtlessness, we lash out. In the moment, one perceived hardship seems reason for us to despair of life. You're ready to go out with the blaze as if nothing else in life matters but the burning anger inside. Well, surely now, surely now the Lord is going to rebuke Jonah. Give him a good lecture. But for the third time, the Lord simply poses a question for him. Look at it there in verses 10 and 11. This time, notice, the Lord doesn't ask Jonah a question about himself, his behavior. He, he asks Jonah to evaluate his, that is, the Lord's behavior. Isn't that remarkable? Jonah has, in effect, been evaluating the Lord's action, you saw there early in the chapter, and, and saying he was wrong. And now the Lord himself invites him to evaluate his, that is, the Lord's sovereign action once more. More than that, notice the Lord sets up as the standard for the evaluation Jonah's behavior. He takes something Jonah's doing, and in effect he's saying, Jonah, judge me by this that you've done. He frames his question in a way that calls for the application of a logical argument. Perhaps you notice that, that, that this is going to engage a different part of Jonah's brain. <laughs> this is going to call him to think. Specifically, Jonah is being asked with this question to employ the logic of an a fortiori argument. Did I say that correctly? An argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay, think Jonah here. And notice this too. Just one final thing to notice about this question before we look at it specifically. Jonah is shifting the dialogue from Jonah's anger to Jonah's compassion. That in itself would sort of take Jonah off guard, wouldn't it? Here's the question put in its logical for format. Jonah, if, it's an if-then statement, if you had compassion or concern for the shape plant, for which, by the way, you did no labor, 
You didn't do anything to make it great. There's our keyword again, great. Which came up one night, withered the next. Okay, if you had compassion or concern, you cared about that plant, then, second part of the syllogism, should I not have compassion or concern, same word, for Nineveh, that great city? which has 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, not to mention the domesticated animals. Who is it doesn't know their right hand from the left? Infants, toddlers, right? And that's the end of the story. Or is it? Does the Spirit of the Lord end the book here so that you will finish it? What does Jonah do with his burning anger, do you think, at this point? Does he gain a compassion, like the Lord's compassion? Is he able to care about people much as he cares about his plant. Does he learn to rejoice greatly, not just in his physical comfort, but in the Lord's great mercy, his sovereign will? Does he come to value the kingdom of God more than his ethnic group, his country? Or maybe the Spirit of God designs for you to ask those questions of yourself. What will you do with your burning anger? Will you gain a compassion like the Lord's compassion for others? Will you learn to rejoice greatly in God's sovereign will? Will you come to value the kingdom of God more than your ethnic group and country? What will it take for you to reflect the image of God for which you were created? What will bring you to love not yourself and those like you, your earthly desires, but to love the Lord, your God, with all your being? For you know what it takes. You know what it took, don't you? Because you see it at this table right in front of us. It took nothing less than the sovereign working of the triune God to create in you a clean heart, to live within you by his Holy Spirit. The Son of God had to take upon himself the anger, the just wrath of God against sin. The Father had to write your name in the book of life for creation. And you've been spared not merely earthly destruction like the city of Nineveh, you have been spared an eternal hell. You've been given not merely a bit longer life on this earth like those people in that city. You have been granted eternal life in the presence of God. Well, there is one who truly cares, isn't there?
There is one whose compassion is unfailing. And it is he who saves sinners like us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are in awe before a God who is not only holy and righteous, but who is loving and compassionate, who has deigned to take upon himself the punishment for our sin, who is his purpose to bring weak, finite little creatures like us into fellowship with himself, into union with himself by faith. Oh, what a wonderful gift we see here. Portrayed in this table before us, we ask, Lord, that you would, that you would meet us here. That we would humbly confess our sin and acknowledge you as Savior and Lord. And, and look to you for that transforming power whereby we can live in a way which will show forth your love to others around us and to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.